1: and welcome to fourth estate a show about journalism we are coming to you from 2ser in sydney on the gadigal lands of the eora nation right across australia on the community radio network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast i'm marlene even we're heading across the ditch this week to chat about new zealand journalism How do their journalism practices differ from Australia's? And what can Australian media learn from our Kiwi neighbours? We'll be taking a look at another major media report this week, titled Worlds of Journalism Study 2.0 – Journalists in Aotearoa, New Zealand. The study uncovers who New Zealand journalists are and what they think of journalism. To discuss all this and more, we are joined by Carmen Parahi, Potiaki Matua of Stuff. Welcome to Fourth Estate.
2: Oh, Ho, denakwe, Marlene. Uh, I really appreciate um, the opportunity to be here to talk with you and James today.
1: And we are also joined by Associate Professor Dr James Hollings. James is a researcher at Massey University in New Zealand, and he is the lead researcher of the New Zealand Worlds of Journalism Study 2.0 report, James, welcome to Fourth Estate.
0: Tanakwe Molin and Tanakwe Carmen. Lovely to be here.
1: So let's jump straight in. James, how does New Zealand journalism differ from Australian journalism?
0: Well, we've been studying journalists in Australia and New Zealand now for about the past ten years or so in the world of journalism study. Um, the most we've just completed our latest New Zealand version of the study. Australia's is still to complete theirs, but we can talk about what it is like, say, around about 2015, 2016, the differences there. And I don't think a huge amount of it would have changed. And what you see is they both come very much from that sort of Anglo Western tradition of journalism, which is that news journalism should be sort of relatively fair and balanced and not biased. and... Um, the sort of traditional roles of journalism are being, you know, observers of society, porters on society rather than activists for political change and so on. But within that, there's a few quite interesting little differences that go on between Australia and New Zealand. So Australian journalists, we can say, are more interested in the what we call the consumer-orientated roles of being a journalist. So, for example, if we ask them questions like, do you think the role of a journalist, the journalist is to provide entertainment and relaxation, Australian journalists will say, will give a higher rating, a high proportion of yeses to that question than New Zealand journalists. If we ask them, do you think your job is to provide the kind of news that attracts the largest audience? Australian journalists would give you a higher rating to that question than New Zealand journalists. I mean, so for example, Australian journalists would argue, would respond 3.7 out of 5 for that one. New Zealand journalists would respond three point three roughly. So quite a big difference, maybe twenty percent difference, between Australians and New Zealand journalists on that what's called the consumer oriented role of being a journalist. In other words, they're there to sort of serve the audience. And so on the other hand, if you ask them questions like what are called the classic sort of watchdog questions, you know, is your job to monitor and scrutinize political leaders, Australian journalists and New Zealand journalists very similar, both think it's very important. So if you want to sort of sum all that up and say, what's the difference? Well, Australian journalists are a little bit more, I guess, in the classic traditional role, Anglo-Western role of being a journalist, of being neutral observers, meeting the consumer needs of the audience, if you want to put it that way. Whereas New Zealand journalists are a little bit more interested in um, slightly more partisan, well, not partisan, but more what we call mobiliser role of, you know, Helping change, if you like, and, and getting involved in, in, in advocating for social change. Not not much so, but just slightly more, that's all. So that's, that's, that's sort of some of the key differences I would see.
1: That's really interesting. And Carmen, for you, you've been to Australia for reporting trips. On the ground, how do you see the two countries' journalism differ?
2: Uh, I also worked for Pekata for Māori, Māori Television, which means we had a relationship with NITV. And SBS because of that. Um, so we're, was it, we're able to uh, interact with NITV um, in Australia as well as um, work with um, Indigenous communities there uh, on stories. So, uh, which which was great for us uh, and great for me to be able to do that. To um, just as we're comparing what journalists do here in, uh, in Australia to um, old it's also interesting to see how journalists in Australia um, and officials and um, official dim and government actually respond to um, Australian uh, a- Aboriginal people as well so um, so being able to uh, do that means I can you can actually look at mainstream media here Māori media here look at our um, indigenous media in Australia as well as compare it to mainstream and. I, it's all anecdotal, though, so I'm hoping James, um, as part of this report, may actually look at whether we um, have a take a check on Indigenous media as well uh, in both countries and other uh, Western countries where colonization, colonialism has happened. Because it'd be interesting to see um, what the ratings and the differences would be, what the similarities are in the journalism uh, amongst Indigenous journalists compared to um, other Indigenous journalists in other countries, um, and also to see how main, how uh, Indigenous journalists view their own media within their own con- uh, countries uh, and with regards to Indigenous um, uh, matters, right? So um, so my experience has been very anecdotal because obviously we don't have a lot of those studies available, um, but the experience in New Zealand has been, or in Aotearoa, uh, has been, um, as James alluded to earlier, um, the news media, it's a, a Western European construct. Um, it is very Eurocentric in its traditions and it's uh, the way it views and lenses the world. So if you're looking at Indigenous issues through a European uh, Western Eurocentric lens, um, it means that you will marginalise the experiences and voices of uh, communities uh, like Indigenous peoples because they are outside and they'll be in uh, seen in the margins of that Eurocentric lens. So um, I don't think the experiences are very different. Um, I know uh, speaking with other journalists over the years, Indigenous journalists, journalists over the years from Australia, uh, their experiences are very similar to ours. Um, but I feel like Australia is more extreme. At least here we've been using Te Reo Maori uh, for a long time and. Uh, in the media, so in Māori media, particularly Māori language media um, and uh, mainstream, there are words and phrases that have been used over time, that is actually ramping up a lot now, um, which means that uh, more and more, there's more and more expectation uh, within the industry to use more kāreo Māori. You will hear it uh, on the radio, you will hear it on television and you will see it on stuff.co.nz, which is where I work, um, and you will see translated stories uh, in Te Reo Māori. So we're one one of the only media in New Zealand that actually uh, publishes Te Reo Māori stories online. Um, and it's uh, to be fair, just to make a make a distinction here. So there is a common Te Reo Māori language, uh, and so there are dialectal differences between tribes, um, which we haven't started going to as a, going into as a nation to make that seen in herds but you do see that on um Ewe or Maori tribe tribal radio stations you hear dialectal differences so i do know in australia there are very different uh varied differences uh, in the different languages that are spoken in australia so what has helped us is to have a common kadel maori language so that we can all use that for everybody in aotearoa so everyone in aotearoa is encouraged to use and speak kadel maori so quite a few um, similarities and experience as an indigenous journalist um, being involved in a mainstream media newsroom as an indigenous journalist very similar you will hear stories of racism anecdotal evidence of racism within the newsrooms um, a, a discomfort uh, being challenged every day because you have your own cultural uh, views and experiences and and your voice as an indigenous person being shut down as well so, those are things that we have been talking with our um, counterparts in Australia and sharing information and stories for a long time now as we try to um, ask our uh, media in New Zealand to do better for Māori. Um, at the same time, I would challenge Australian media to do better for their people as well uh, because um, from where I sit, um, I do view the Australian uh, media as being quite racist and um, a lacking of any recognition of, of their own behaviours towards Indigenous people through that very singular Eurocentric lens. Um, you've got a few exceptions like SBS and ABC, but even there we have uh, we have spoken with journalists who have felt very uncomfortable. And over time, they became the only brown voice in a very white institution, and that's a that's a really hard thing. People have to shoulder on their on their own, so they burn out and leave early. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done uh, both sides of the uh, Tasman. Um, but you know, we keep moving forward. So there is progress, uh, consistent progress. Um, but there is there is a long, long way to go. I would love to see uh, ABC, uh, particularly, or one of the big papers, the Australian, perhaps, um, actually reckon with their past, their history investigate it to find out whether they have, how they have treated uh, their Indigenous population and the way that they've reported on them and just reckon with that and reconcile with that and trying to, to find ways to make amends um, into the future and be, build better relationships.
1: And last week on our program, we, we looked at the diversity or lack of it in Australian TV and News and Current Affairs James, what's the situation in New Zealand on, on New Zealand media across the board?
0: Um, well, just from our most recent survey, I can tell you that ethnicity. So
2: it's uh, if, we look at,
0: yeah, if we look at the newsrooms and New Zealand journalists, um, about two-thirds of New Zealand journalists are New Zealand European. About 10% are Maori and 7% are European, genuinely European from born in Europe and about 3% Asian, about 2% Pacifica. Um, There's been a reasonably good increase in the number of Māori in New Zealand Zealand, newsroom in the last six or seven years. It's gone up about 20% from from about 8% to about 10%. Um, Still quite low when you consider the number of Māori in the general population which is around 15 to 20%. So Still got quite a lot bit of work to do there to to get a sort of more representative proportion. Pacifica is still very low, um, and Asian is still low. Um, those are the sort of big areas. Um, there's a growth in the New Zealand, Asian Indian population in New Zealand, and in, in journalism in New Zealand, we're seeing um, that growing quite quickly um, as well. That's the general sort of overview. In those
2: um, numbers as well, uh, Marlene, um, as James said. It's disproportionate to the working population, and disproportionate again to the general population. Um, some of our uh, the Indian uh, community are actually doing their own media, which will probably push up those numbers. Um, but we're way underrepresented. We've got so, and this is what it kind of makes me feel agitated actually, and I get very impatient. Um, not around you, James, or the study, <laughs> but just I get impatient because we know, we know this and um, these studies are great that James um, and other academics do because it paints a picture, uh, a stark picture of the reality of it. So when you have that many Pakia who are uh, in, in uh, news organisations, it does uh, create bias towards um, that group and their population. Um, and so that's, that's why it's really important to ensure that you have a, a proportionate amount of journalists compared to the population. Um, but also, from an equity perspective, you should actually expect to have more. Um, so, New Zealand and Australia are both in the Pacific, right? We have huge Pacific uh, numbers in our populations that are have a, you know, have an influence on um, society. We have, we're right next to Southeast Asia. We've got Southeast Asia, Asia across to, up to India, um, representation in both our countries. And yet their voices are marginalized, stereotyped, uh, within those organizations, um, where they are not the main news organizations. So, um, so there is a lot of work to do there. Uh, let's not forget we uh, need to also improve our disabilities representation, our queer representation. That needs to be seen in our newsrooms as well because we, if we were to – so the role of uh, journalists is to observe and, um, but also to educate and influence society. <laughs> How can you do that when you actually don't even look like society, like you physically do not look like society? So how can we say we deliver for everyone when we don't. We deliver right. for everyone through a particular lens. And that is that's until we like really um acknowledge that in Australia particularly, like New Zealand's gone through a huge reckoning in the last two, two and a half years particularly. So we're becoming more and more aware and acute, uh, acutely aware of uh what work we need to do. But Australia's so far behind. They really need to sort their shit out.
0: Mm-hmm. Can I just give a quick example? I totally agree, Carmen. Can I give a quick example, actually, for your listeners of of, of why diversity is important? And this is a story which is going of goes against the usual narrative of Australia. New Zealanders are better than Australians, and all this so sort of thing. There's a town in New Zealand called Pokoia, which is just south of Auckland, and it was the centre of a kind of whites-only policy in New Zealand for a long time. It had a colour bar. It was basically apartheid, and and that sort of story has been unearthed recently by an American academic who's been here, and not and he, not
2: so long ago either, James. That's so right. So it wasn't and like it was in the 30s, uh,
0: 1930s. It was right no. up until the seventies. Yeah, in the nineteen sixties, if you are Maori and Pukakoi, you couldn't get your hair cut at the local barber. You had to go and you couldn't sit upstairs at the cinema. You mm. could only visit the swimming pool on Friday. That sort of thing. And so, interestingly, Pukakoi. This American academic has got into Pukakoi and then we tried to reckon reckon with this terribly racist sort of past, and they had a sort of a healing hikoi, which is a Māori word meaning um, march through the centre of the town street. This is quite recently, in the last few weeks. And the local paper, the Franklin District Times, didn't cover it because they don't want to hear about it, you know. And so, on the other hand, if there was some Māori working at the Franklin District Times, presumably they would have covered it. So that's how it plays out. That's why diversity is important because, Otherwise, stories just get ignored.
2: I do have to say, though, I do have, um, and I've said this to James before, concerns around the use of the word diversity and inclusion because it always comes from a reference point of we're the majority. So we're the majority and we want to help create diversity and we want to be inclusive. Whereas um, if you're coming from my perspective, I'm like, well, there are variations of all types of uh, people that are in New Zealand. So um, it is not about diversity. It's not about inclusion. Um, it's about social cohesion, which is actually a term I prefer, is how do we keep create social cohesion in our newsrooms? How do we create social cohesion uh, in the public? And is it even the role of uh, journalists? journalist? I'm not sure it is. I, I am uh, a bit old school and I do like Um, being being an observing uh, journalist but at the same time without um, things like which was our investigation of our own organisation to reckon with our um, history and past and then apologise to Māori for it just two years ago. If we'd, we'd had an observer role we would never have done that work so there is also a shift in our journalism ethics around observation um, and getting involved in education because what is interesting about James's study is that seeing journalists say, well, actually, I'm here to educate uh, the public as well, I thought that was fascinating because it's, it is a shift away from the observer role because there's more of an understanding around every journalist brings their own bias to the newsroom, whatever they may be. I prefer dark chocolate to light chocolate. I prefer the hurricanes, rugby team. To the Blues rugby team, so there's all these sorts of quirks and bias that belong to everybody. So I think we are getting, we are learning more and more about um, being an observer, being independent, but knowing at the same time, uh, actually, i I have my own biases that I'm going to bring it here to my my news uh, reporting. So it's I think we're getting to that place where we're in this this tension. At the moment, about redefining journalism um, and what it's going to be in the future, it's actually really exciting. Um, but in that tension comes conflict and concern, um, and and it can be quite polarizing, even in newsrooms, about how a story should be covered and why a particular story is covered in a particular way. So there, um, there, I do think it's exciting. I really, really like um, James's study. It tells us a lot, and we push hard at stuff to ensure that our reporters were a part of this as well Um, and I was interested to see that actually there is a very centre-left politics or thinking, not so much politics but um, attitudes uh, and those that actually responded to the study as well.
1: Mm. And it's so fascinating to really have a look at what the role of a journalist is and to compare like traditional roles and as you mentioned Carmen like this this idea of being the observer and when you step in to either educate or to advocate or for the example of the the apology that you mentioned but James when we're talking about what the role of a journalist is and what the journalists in New Zealand believe the role of a journalist is has there been a shift from this idea of the neutral observer to uh, the idea of educating audiences
0: um, yeah, a small but subtle and really quite significant shift. So, as Carmen was saying, what she was talking about with what's going on at Stuff there and the work that she's done is is incredibly interesting in the way it's challenged the organisation to. And for those of you readers in Australia, who don't know Stuff is our probably mainstream number one um, online news organisation. Or dominates it's used to be owned by Fairfax Australia and now it's taken over in local ownership thank god um and (laughs) I agree but um and so it's done this amazing reckoning with its past, and but it's it would be like um News Corp almost uh doing a sort of a deep dive and reckoning and changing and saying look we've been racist and we'll be like so it's that kind of level of engagement throughout New Zealand that stuff has and so you know these are often very traditional trained journalists that work for stuff and they've been doing this reckoning as part of this organization and they're very on board with it I mean the the figures show in our survey that that, the journalists believe this is important to do Um, and so huge credit to Carmen and her team for leading that and sort of realizing that the moment had come to do that and it doesn't have to compromise the role of a journalist of being an independent observer but anyway back to your original question uh, Marlene the there has been overall in New Zealand journalism a slight well, a significant sort of interesting shift. If we ask them what the two top roles of a journalist are now, they mm-hmm. would say it's combating disinformation and educating the audience, whereas previously it was, you know, the basic observer role. And that's a really interesting shift that's going on. It's part of the widespread concern that's out there about the um, about the disinformation disor- information disorder, as it's called, sort of thing that's going on. I
2: think disinformation, actually, I was really pleased to see that that was... Um... One of the top two, actually, James, because it is for me. Um, I think it's an opportunity for journalism to really prove itself now, because we're gonna we're ha- we're having to push back and really um, take on our role as the um, uh, for the state and the and take really take on that watchdog role um, to help society understand the difference between disinformation um, and what is. Uh, reliable sourced information. Uh, and actually the date the danger of disinformation, uh, which we saw um, in stuffed circuits, um, documentary, Fire and Fury, uh, how how disinformation is really working hard to undermine democracy um, and all things that um, our society has developed all over time. So those are, uh, disinformation is a big one and I, I don't know what the figures are for the Australian media, James would know but I would suspect um, that Australia is very aware of this as well and I would hope that that is up in its top considerations uh, around journalism.
0: Yes, I agree, Yeah.
2: One of the other um, points uh, in um, World of Journalism study report is that in the top 1, 2, 3, Five, the fifth one, which wasn't asked in 2015, but it was asked in this one, which is uh, to speak on behalf of the marginalized. Now, we um, did talk about this in a discussion with James and other academics, uh, media academics, around what that meant, because to speak on behalf of the marginalized, like I, you would have to be careful around that, but the fact that it was there and it was quite high up, I thought that was really interesting.
0: It is interesting, isn't it? And I think journalists are sort of challenging some of the old roles and there's this new generation coming through that aren't just happy with being this sort of I think one of those interesting other interesting shifts is they aren't just happy with being, I guess, meeting consumer needs and um, you know, telling what the their readers which tool they should buy at Bunnings this week to, you know, to put the spring planting in with. Um they're also interested in doing other stuff as well and they see I think that there is this kind of almost a war going on with the, with the information disorder people, the, you know, challenging the fake news people, uh, and that what is, that is a direct challenge to sort of journalists' role is in terms of of, of giving audiences um, factual, reliable information.
2: Yeah, I'll just touch on that point around, speak on behalf of the marginalised again, because what I was thinking about um, was that actually what happens um, is like at the COVID um, 1 p.m. stand-ups that we used to have with the government and health authorities, is that often reporters would ask questions but on behalf of the all of society questions, whereas now we have been asking our journalists, please ask questions for Māori, please ask questions for Pacifica, because their experiences through COVID are totally different from the general population totally different from in New Zealand or white New Zealand. So so I think that's what they mean by speak on behalf of the marginalised, is that actually when we're in front of the authorities, when we're in front of people with power and control, we actually need to speak up on behalf of all parts, different parts of society so that they can get to hear the answers they need and we can actually write the stories and response and for them. So the other week we had the reserve, bank governor talking to us about inflation, about um, enforced rise in inflation um, and that may actually enforce a recession next year. Um, So he's telling us don't spend so much, spend less, spend less, spend less. But not a single reporter asked Adrian Orr about whether um, the Reserve Bank had considered how their policy would actually impact on people in low socioeconomic communities? How would those policies impact on Māori? How would your policies, Mr Adrian, all impact on our Pacific community? Because they all have different experiences when it comes to a recession. And when the economy starts to fail, it is those communities that will struggle the most and not a single one of our reporters um, actually, or actually ask those questions, which is very concerning because we're still using that monocultural. Um, uh, I will ask my questions for all New Zealanders and, um, it's very generic and there's no specificity into in those answers. So we, like I said, we've got a long way to go, but when you have people that are consistently advocating to speak on behalf of the marginalized, that is what they mean. Is that they will ask the questions on behalf of Pacific communities to say,
1: Yo, Minister, what are you doing for the Pacific community in your policy? And it's such an important point. Carmen, looking over to Australia, the media coverage is increasing here on the Voice to Parliament, which is a proposed referendum to constitutionally enshrine an advisory group to the government made up of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders. What do you think are some lessons the Australian media could take from New Zealand media and, and the reckoning that you've been talking about? It's,
2: there's got to be multiple actions. So there is no one fix. There, is, uh, there needs to be multiple actions to shift the culture and the way of thinking around the media, right? So um, if the media views that work and what's happening through the long leg, wrong legs they could uh, start to report on it quite differently to if they were to re- report on it from the lens um, of uh, Indigenous peoples in Australia. Um, so it's really important that you actually think about what lens you're putting on when looking at particular subjects. So you can look at one subject and put totally, like, just change the lens over and over and over again, and you get different outcomes every time. You also get a different story, and you'd use different voices as well. So this is the beauty of using a multi-lens approach to journalism rather than the single Eurocentric lens, because you get to have an enriched view, and enriched voices, and way better storytelling um, if you if you apply a multi-lens approach to journalism. So, and you can still remain the observer. You can still remain, you know, a journalist who is independent that is not swayed by by politics or can't be bought for the stories that they're doing, right? So those are really important things that no one should ever, ever um, get into.
0: So just add one little point, observation. One thing that, I don't know if Australian is aware, but we've had it in the last sort of 10, 15 years or so, um, Maori television in New Zealand, which has been incredibly successful. So the government intervened, set up a separate funding stream for a Maori television channel, and that's grown and grown and grown and been a huge influence in New Zealand in sourcing Māori content, developing Māori content, hearing the language, te reo spoken constantly on air with subtitles, so anyone can get involved, anyone can learn. It's a great way for everyone to sort of participate and involved in and um, hugely successful, I would think, in New Zealand. It's been, I don't think you wouldn't hear anyone who says that it should be got rid of or anything or that's separatist or any of that sort of rubbish. It's actually just a, really has grown the whole mediascape in New Zealand. So that's been um, super super influential, and it's also had a great, just give you one quick anecdote about a former student of mine working in Maori TV, and this is why I think a TV a channel like that, why it's so important for the overall benefit of all New Zealanders is she was telling me about a story she did about a police shooting of a young Maori guy in Taranaki, and long story short, she got a great story with the family that they would never have told the Pakeha media because she knew how to talk to them, And she knew how to access that story and get inside what really happened in that police shooting Um, because she was Māori, but also because she knew how to speak to that family. and That's a benefit to all New Zealanders, that kind of watchdog role that she could play because she was coming from within that Māori, Tao Māori, Māori world. So um, we've come a long way in New Zealand in some ways, but I I think one of the truly great success stories we have had is, is
2: Māori TV. But when it was first set up uh, and when it was first mooted, there was there was actually a uh, Altia, remember Aotearoa television, uh, James, that was set up before Māori television, um, and it was really political, highly political, um, very challenging, and people complained that it was separatist then, and then, yeah. then Māori television was set up. But at the time that it was being set up, people did complain. So you had politicians that would complain, called it separatist. We didn't need it. It was a waste of government money, um, but it was still set up and it remains remains there and it's still doing its work and uh, creating good content, as James said. But it wasn't without its controversy. There were people no. that, that did say that it was an expensive waste of time. Um, but, of course, it's proven itself over and over again um, and Māori television actually or Fikata it's called now Fikata Māori is a very strong relationship within ITV in Australia
1: It's been wonderful to learn about the differences between New Zealand and Australian journalism and also quite a few of the the similarities as well Thank you both so much for joining the program
0: Thank you Marlene Bye
2: oh,
1: bye, thank you Marlene,
0: thanks James
1: Finally? Thank kite mahana kia And thank you for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the community radio network. And to hear more about the media reckonings and the Stuff.co New Zealand Apology... We have a special podcast series that Carmen joined us earlier in the year for. It's called Black Bias. It's hosted by Rhianna Patrick and Madeline heyman reba a collaboration between Indigenous X, the University of Technology, Sydney, and 2SER Radio. Head on over to 4th Estate Podcast and you'll find the six part Black Bias podcast series. 4th Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to our executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for listening.